Welcome to Edge of Sports, the podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we talk about Lawrence Phillips, former NFL player found dead of an apparent suicide in his jail cell at Kern Valley State Prison in California at just 40 years old. Phillips was serving a 31-year sentence for hitting teenagers with his car and beating an ex-girlfriend. He was facing trial as well for killing his old cellmate in a situation that he said was self-defense. Now, to be clear, don't listen to this show if you are comfortable with demonizing Lawrence Phillips, if you're calling him a thug who's better off dead. But also, don't listen to this show if you expect us to somehow rehabilitate Lawrence Phillips, where we say there's no personal accountability for his actions. No, this is a show where we want to look at this in three dimensions. We want to unpack every part of this story. Violence against women, mental illness, childhood abuse, the possible role of football and head injuries, and the sin that is the criminal justice system in the United States, which really does have Lawrence Phillips' blood on their hands. Now, to figure this out, as we'll hear, I have people to help. I'm going to have a teammate of Lawrence Phillips, who's currently a radio host in Omaha, Damon Benning, who was part of those championship teams at Nebraska with Lawrence Phillips. Then I'm going to have our favorite, Professor Chris Dotson Pearson, who's going to be here to help us unpack this. And lastly, we're going to have Neil Irvin, the executive director of Men Can Stop Rape. Because as we talk about all the ways that Lawrence Phillips was done wrong by the public school system, the sports world, the absence of health care, the prison industrial complex, we never want it forgotten that the women in his life were damaged by him being damaged as well. Before we start, I just want to say some facts so we're all on the same page. Lawrence Phillips started his life as a target of constant physical abuse by the men in his mother's life. In the words of a former teammate, he went to school in sixth grade and just never came back. He was shuffled through group homes before his football skills got him plucked out of poverty. But then, when his off-field issues outpaced his on-field production on the NFL's ledger sheet, he was cast aside. Phillips had a history of violence against women, and make no mistake about it, this was learned behavior. His mother is an abuse survivor, and in the words of another teammate, he grew up, quote, seeing things no child should see, end quote. Before Lawrence Phillips' 12th birthday, he was knocked unconscious by a man she was seeing while trying to defend her. As another teammate said, quote, he was a hurt person and hurt people hurt people. Yet his early run-ins with the law, instead of provoking interventions by the football coaches who comprised the adult authority figures in his life, only brought cover-ups, aimed to protect their golden goose, a kid who everyone said ran the ball like a future MVP. And while there was a lot to cover up, there were also endless warning signs that this person needed help. In listening to a series of interviews with old teammates, you hear stories of violence conjoined with mental illness, of someone who, quote, didn't have all the tools in his toolbox, who could turn from kindness to anger in a moment's notice, lash out, and then be consumed with regret. This was someone who needed counseling. Instead, he had people just hoping he would win the big game before his next arrest. And this took place most notoriously, as we'll discuss, at Nebraska. Now, Phillips' coach, the legendary Tom Osborne, said at the time that he took Phillips back onto the team despite arrest, despite dragging an ex-girlfriend down a flight of stairs. Uh, They took him back on the team without further punishment because the young man needed, quote, structure and stability that only Cornhuskers football could offer. Osborne also got him in an anger management program. But as we're going to discuss, anger management is not therapy, it's maintenance. And that structure 
was a college football program where the team collected sexual assault charges and violence against women charges and harassment charges the way they collected national championships and conference titles. Now, the NFL was not any better. After Phillips was selected with the sixth pick in the 96 NFL draft by the Rams, team president Georgia Frontier said, if he helps our team, that's all I care about. The thing that counts is the future. Not Phillips' future, the team's future. His future would be defined less by success on the field than more violent episodes. Now, whether or not the childhood trauma experienced by Phillips was aggravated by brain injuries from playing football, one fact is certain. Living in the notorious Kern Valley State Prison did not help. Our system of mass incarceration is pure torture for the mentally ill, and Lawrence Phillips' story exemplifies that. In March 2015, Phillips wrote to his mother, and this is a quote, I feel myself very close to snapping. My anger grows daily as I've become fed up with prison. I feel my anger is near bursting and that it will result in my death or the death of someone else. Sure enough, that September, Phillips was charged with strangling his cellmate, an instance he swore was self-defense. Phillips's letters to his family and coaches from behind bars describe a situation that must have just set his brain on fire in a situation that he called like living in a jungle. And now Phillips is gone. And predictably, few people are mourning Lawrence Phillips. It's so much easier to say he was a monster than asking much more difficult questions. How did Lawrence Phillips die if he was supposed to be in protective custody? Why are there such pathetic mental health services in our prisons when a majority of the 2.2 million of the incarcerated suffer from some form of mental illness? Why does our system of mass incarceration destroy people, particularly black and brown people, so casually? How many coaches would cover up for the Lawrence Phillipses of today as long as they could carry the rock? Is this the exception or the norm? And most critically, who killed Lawrence Phillips? He may have died by his own hand, but it was also a death in slow motion taking place over the course of decades, with many who either pushed him toward this fate or turned the other way as he hurtled toward this appalling end. We could ask these questions, or we could just throw dirt on Lawrence Phillips' grave and name, but that just means this story will repeat itself with different names. Our next guest is a four-year player for the Nebraska Cornhuskers, a running back who helped lead them to back-to-back national titles in the 1990s. And he was, of course, a teammate and close friend of Lawrence Phillips. Today, he is a sports talk show host from 7 to 11 a.m. Monday through Friday on 1620 The Zone in Omaha. His name is Damon Benning. Who was the Lawrence Phillips that you knew? Uh, you know, the the Lawrence Phillips that I knew was a guy that uh, uh, was there in a pinch. Uh, he was loyal. Um, he was fiercely protective. Uh, he had a he had a kind and and concerning uh, nature about him. Uh, and he was a guy that uh, you know he was oftentimes complicated. Um, he was guarded, um, and there was a certain degree of care that he took when it came time to developing relationships. Uh, and I think I kind of understood that from the get-go. How long did it take you to build trust, friendship with him? I know you guys played the same position at running back, probably were in a lot of the same position meetings. How long did it take yep. f- for that trust to be built? Uh, you know, I would say probably about six or seven months. You know, we were we were always what I would call, at least in my estimation early on, what I would call friends. Um, but he, it took him a little bit of time to kind of, 
you know, feel me out a little bit, you know, to, 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 to make sure that he felt comfortable with me having his best interest at heart. So I would say it probably took six or seven months. Mm. Now, I, I'm really am curious about this next question because you can give us like the most up close view and it affects so many other things in my opinion. But how good a player was Lawrence Phillips? You played with a lot of great players. Where do you put Lawrence Phillips on that list? You know, I, I, Lawrence, and I, I think no hyperbole needed here. He was the most gifted physical player that I had ever been around. And that includes my time in NFL training camps. That includes uh, the times that I was a kid watching guys live uh, that I admired growing up wanting to play at Nebraska, like Mike Rozier, uh, Roger Craig, Derek Brown, Calvin Jones, yeah. uh, you know, Tim Biaka, Batuka when I was in Carolina. He was the most gifted runner that I had ever seen. Mm. And at Nebraska, uh, I, I got to just ask you, like when you knew him there, um, how would you describe his moods about his ability to navigate situations? Did you ever think to yourself, like this is someone who needs intervention, needs help, needs counseling? Like I know you were very young at the time, but what, what were your thoughts? And I tell you, I, didn't, I never once got that inkling. I remember when I heard the news, I was shocked. He was ridiculously bright. You know, I don't know what his IQ was, but I imagine it was exceptionally high. He was very charming. You know, he had a super smile, and he was smart. You know, my father was uh, assistant superintendent of Omaha Public Schools, uh, and he and my mom um, had what I would call, you know, traditional family roles. You know, my mom really poured into the kids and invested into the kids, and my dad went to work, and when Lawrence would come for dinner, we would come from Lincoln to Omaha, which is only about forty-five minute drive. And you know, when he'd want a home cooked meal or to get away a little bit, and he and my dad would talk about, you know, like education after football, you know, and things that that he could do uh, to to get that kind of enjoyment when he stopped playing. Like just just the higher level conversations that they would have. I thought were pretty impressive. He he was extremely bright. Now he obviously had a a lot of of issues and problems while at Nebraska. Did you feel like the environment at Nebraska enabled some of these problems, or did you feel like that your coach, the coaching staff, the counselors, that they really made an honest effort to get him help? Well, I, I you know I feel like uh, Coach Osborne is about as other centered a person as, as you can ever be around. Uh, and he's a greater good kind of guy. And so in order to function and, and, and maintain yourself at a high level at the University of Nebraska, you had to do a lot of things off the field. And I think Coach Osborne was very firm in that. Now, I know, you know, people who are listening can say, hey, you know, that that's uh, what's a guy going to say about his coach. But when you talk about fair and firm, there's a lot of living testimonies of guys, whether they were suspended for a game or for a half or had to meet with the Unity Council, which is a, a group of peers that Coach Osborne and Dr. Jack Stark created in order to promote a healthy environment at the University of Nebraska. I think they went above and beyond trying to create an environment in which we could function at a high level, yet maintain some sort of sense of, of being connected to other people. And I think that was kind of the beauty of the environment at Nebraska. And when Lawrence was, um, when he was suspended from the team and wasn't able to participate, 
the checks and balances that that I think Nebraska went through uh, in terms of the obligations that he had to meet, the anger management classes, him meeting um, with his psychologist at that time, being kind of young and juvenile, you don't really understand the magnitude of what he did to the to the degree of of what it is now. I mean, we thought it was a little harsh, mm. you know, and, and, and that's just me being honest, right? I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a 19, 20 year old kid. I'm amateur. I'm not very bright. I'm thinking, why is he always going to see all these people? You know, he'd always had his, he always had this binder and he was walking and he'd say, Hey, I have to go see such and such. I've got to report in here. I've got to see such and such. And to us at that time, it seemed extremely rigid, but you know, hindsight being twenty twenty, and, and and knowing what I know now, you know that um, those are the steps that are necessary when you have things of the magnitude that happen happen. I mean, looking back at those '90s teams at Nebraska, um, a lot of issues that were connected to violence against women, uh, sexual harassment, sexual assault that was not just around the team, but I mean in the area as well. So it's, I mean, I'm not trying to make it as if it was just a team issue. But do do you feel like it was confronted in the '90s the way it would be confronted now? Um, I think it's a little different. I mean, social media, uh, the heightened awareness in terms of social norms, societal norms, having some cases, some 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 precedents uh, now being set with things that happen. The Greg Hardys, the uh, the Ray Rice's, the the, the the alcohol infractions, what teams do now and how media is handled, uh, I think it would have been a, a, a lot different uh, for us in the 90s. I think it's also, I, you know, Dave, I, I think it's important that having been a part of that that era and being in that type of environment, there do we have some guys that made poor choices? Absolutely. I mean, as does, if you take that type of fraction of society, you take 100 and you know, 30 guys and you have four or five. I, I think that's about the societal norm. So I don't want it to be painted as though we were a bunch of renegades running rough shop. There were rules, there were discipline, and there were a lot of guys that couldn't function in that environment and had to find other places to attend school. I mean, it was a, you're talking about a lot of alpha males in a new environment in Lincoln, Nebraska that didn't look a lot like the places uh, that a lot of guys came from, and and there was there was quite the learning curve uh, that I think Coach Osborne and the staff and the academic folks in the in the Hewitt Center and that institution wanted to instill, and and uh, there were there were some growing pains. Now Lawrence Phillips had a lot of male role models in his life, football coaches throughout his life, who I know he corresponded with from behind bars, people who meant a lot to him. Do you think? It's accurate to say that some of these male role models in his life gave him a pass instead of actively seeking help for him because of his talented football. You know, I know there are a lot of guys that, um, you know, were involved, like you said, Coach Pagoni, uh, Coach Zane, uh, Coach Darlington, guys like that. But remember, Lawrence is a, he's an extremely bright individual. We knew as much as he wanted us to know. And he was well, in my opinion, he was well adjusted to having to deal with folks that were trying to either read into him, judge him, Mm. or get inside of his head in terms of what he was thinking. He was 
very smart, very charming. And so I think when Coach is on the outside looking in, he's able to hold these conversations. And you can tell by some of his writings while behind bars, mm-hmm. he's a deep-level thinker, and he's, he's got a very high aptitude. So in times when you're coming mm-hmm. across talking to him, he could give you the sense that he was fine. And there were times that he was, there were times that he wasn't. It was difficult for those, I think, around him to, to know which and decipher which was which. Some of the prison writings that he did are some of the most devastating descriptions of prison life that I've read in years. I mean, it's harrowing. And his ability to communicate that, I think, tells a story all its own. Um, I did want to ask you this because you are a radio host in Omaha. Uh, what has been the local reaction to Lawrence's death? Well, I, I think uh, his local perception is a lot different than the national perception because there are so many guys that knew him. Not everything that we've said on our show or that had been in the papers obviously have folks agreed with. We understood that, uh, you know, soured with someone's brother, with someone's sister, with someone's father, uh, potentially with someone's uh, son. We know that Kate McEwen was with someone's daughter, with someone's teammate. Uh, so you know there has to be a certain amount of decency and understanding that there are indeed victims. Um, But the stance that we took, uh, the stance that I take is a friend loving a friend. And I'll never, you know, apologize for loving a guy that didn't always make great choices. And last question for you, Damon, it it is a tough one, but it's like, go, go back and be 20 year old Damon Benning for a second. What would you say to 20-year-old Lawrence Phillips if you had the chance to address him at that point in his life, knowing what you know now? I'd tell him, I'd absolutely, that, that's, that's an easy one. And it's the same thing that I would tell him if I saw him tomorrow. It's that I love him unconditionally and that anything that he needed, I would ask that he would confide that in me so we could do the things that we needed to do in order to keep him safe, both emotionally and physically. Uh, that is that true agape type love. And that's what I wasn't capable of doing then that has been a cause uh, from time to time that can keep you up at night about one of the things that you can do different. I would have poured in much more. Do you think the culture of football maybe keeps people, particularly young men, from having those kinds of discussions with each other? Uh, I do. and I think, But I also think that's one of the things that made our relationship unique. Uh, was that we were over time developed the ability to go there with some of those those conversations and philosophically understand what feelings are, um, but it is a very difficult, especially then. Maybe not so much as now. You know, there's a lot of sensitivity training. There's a lot of courses. There's a lot more psychological components that go into sports now. Um, but definitely at that time, Dave, it was extremely difficult. Damon Benning, thanks so much for joining us here on the Edge of Sports podcast. Really are grateful in our deepest, deepest sympathies and condolences for your loss. Hey, I appreciate the fair perspective. You do good work. Thank you, sir. Hey, thanks, Dave. And to help me figure this out, I've got Professor Christian Dotson-Pearson. Hey, Chris, how you doing? I'm well. How are you, Dave? Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Your general reaction to this story when you heard about it? 
So I think in general, we are quick to point blame towards Phillips and say it's his fault. But when you look at his childhood, you have to wonder if he didn't have that father figure, who was going to teach him? So in some ways, it's a little bit of sadness. I consider him to be a beautiful catastrophe because here's this man who had all the ability in the world, but he didn't know how to properly use it or organize his strengths and weaknesses in a way that could be used positively rather than negatively. Now, he did have father figures, though, but they remind me of this old expression, it may take a village to raise a child, but it also takes a village to destroy a child. Like He had these father figures in his life, but it seems like they had the interests of football more than they had his own interests at heart. Do you think he just ran himself into terrible luck or do you think that's the situation a lot of kids find themselves in if they're good at sports and also looking for role models for structure and find it through sports? I think it's the latter. I think a lot of times parents or people who assume the role of parents will put the child or children into into a position where I want you to live out the dreams I did not pursue. And so if sports is that avenue, they will use that. And I think it's sad because in the process, you're concerned about the outcome of the fame, the popularity, the money, but then who's really there to monitor the child's well-being, the mental health? Does the child even want to play? Yeah, does the child even want to play? I mean, that's something that uh, definitely gets left on the back burner. Another thing that criminologists have looked at and studied and say is demonstrably true is that black women with black male partners are less likely to call the police than white women in abusive situations out of double fears. Mm -hmm. The first fear is you're in a precarious economic situation Mm -hmm. and you could be taking out an earner out of the household. And the second fear is that you could be sending this person who... Um, who is part of your life into the criminal justice system. So not into a healing situation, but in a situation where they become another black man who's not going to have a judge who sees them as human and they get put up for a long bid and just perpetuating the attacks on black America through the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. Have you ever um, known anyone who is in that situation where they were in an abusive situation but feared reaching out to the police for for reasons like this? Or have you ever heard that anecdotally? I personally don't know anyone, but I've read about women who have been afraid to come forward for that very reason. They feel like more or less they may have stumbled upon luck for lack of a better term, because here's this man who's playing in a league. He's well-known, very successful, making money, and so he's able to take care of her. And I think a lot of times women become comfortable and accept his lifestyle, his friends, his behavior, because they feel like if I let go, if I say something, I lose it. And because a lot of times they may not have anything to fall back on, then they feel like I can't do it. So I just need to stay. And I think it's problematic. Um, I don't know if you all recall from when the Ray Rice situation broke and Twitter was used as a way for women and others to kind of express their thoughts. The hashtag why I stayed became very popular and was trending a lot. And a lot of women talked about reasons they stayed, whether it was because I'm afraid no one's going to believe me or I just don't know what else to do. This is all I know. And so I think or it, you could be risking death by leaving. Right. Like often women stay because it's it's the, the breakup that leads to even more violent behavior. And there's mm-hmm. real fear. And I just think it's it's sad because there's different outlets that they can go to, but they just choose not to use them because of the various reasons. Or maybe they've even been told, if you report me, 
if I get taken away, something happens, I will still find a way to inflict harm upon you. And economics is often ignored because that's often an elite response. Mm-hmm. Like, why aren't you just leaving? And it's like, well, who has the resources to move? And why do you assume that I have them? Right. Was, but that hashtag was very powerful. But it also met with a response by people who said, well, wait a minute. You know, we've moved too far in the other direction. Why are we listening to women? Why are we assuming guilt onto men? Mm-hmm. But the reality is quite different in terms right. of like how often women are actually do come forward. I mean, the statistics on this issue are so unreliable precisely because we don't know Mm -hmm. because so much is unreported for sure. We also have here in studio the executive director of Men Can Stop Rape, Neil Irvin. Neil, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Dave. So first and foremost, Men Can Stop Rape. Can you talk a little bit about the work, what it does, and how it relates to this discussion that we're having? Sure. Men Can Stop Rape uh, started in 1997 as an all-volunteer collective here in Washington, D.C., and over the last 18 years has grown to both a domestic and international leader, uh, engaging men, mobilizing men in the prevention of men's violence against women. And we say that very intentionally, men's violence against girls and women. And that's not being anti-male, but it's looking at some of the information the professor just shared and trying to put it in some context into our everyday lives. The majority of us as men will never perpetrate an act of sexual assault or domestic violence. And so our work has been about mobilizing those men to be involved in our daily lives, in the attitudes, assumptions, beliefs, behaviors, language, to role model from our language what healthy masculinity is capable of. Your work is less to engage the one person who's going to commit an act of sexual violence at a party and more engaging the 50 people who turn the other way while it's happening. The bystanders are the ones we are looking to engage. Okay, so now let's talk about Lawrence Phillips. So the first question is this. You've probably heard us talking here, and Professor and I have been talking about the prison industrial complex, about the abuse Lawrence Phillips suffered as a child, about coaches who turned the other way. Are we in some way normalizing or excusing violence against women by trying to look at root causes or is that essential in understanding it? Oh, I don't think it's I I think it's essential in that it's not either or. I mean, I think the data and the statistics are important. I think the primary prevention, um, as we were talking before, we're trying to change a social contract and a culture that's like, you know, it's the big boat you're trying to turn. You're not going to do it on a dime. And so I think you have to look at the root causes. And for us, it's about nature, nurture and environment. Boys and girls, we're taught violence. You know, we, we're taught by the village, either nurturing, protective, life-building skills, or we're compromised by them. So you do indeed have to look at the root causes as a way to help people understand it and put it in context in their lives, nature, nurture, and environment. Going back and looking at Lawrence Phillips's uh, rap sheet and run-ins with the law, you always heard people say, it's good that he's going to go to jail because maybe he'll learn the lesson and come out smarter. Uh, this kind of redemptive story that going to prison will set young men on the right track on this issue in particular. But then you look at Lawrence Phillips's story and what did prison do except take his brain? And I keep saying this phrase because it's the way I think about it, but just set it on fire. And now he's dead at 40. Yet you also hear a lot of people say the problem is that people, men who commit violence against women are never brought to justice. So what does justice look like in a way, like, for example, in the Lawrence Phillips case? What does mm-hmm. justice look like? Because he did things that, by the law, demanded a prison cell, yet prison cells 
do not do any favors to anybody. And the growth of the prison industrial complex does not do any favors to anybody. Can, can, can you talk a little bit about that? Or should we be looking at both carceral and psychological solutions? Or do we break the cycle of prisons as a response to this kind of violence? How, how do you guys navigate this? And I know it's not an easy question. Well, I think what's important to know is that it's not either or. You know, justice, you know, should be based on how a survivor, what, what is justice for a survivor? I've talked to many survivors, male and female, uh, children uh, of survivors of incest, uh, you know, domestic violence, you know, gang rapes for over the, the 16 years I've been at Men Can Stop Rape. And what justice looks like to all of them has been different depending on their circumstances. And so I don't think just locking someone up has been the unilateral response. What I've heard most consistently from survivors of sexual assault is that the first thing that they wish is that it had never happened. And that what we've heard, and this sounds simplistic, but many of them then say they would want to know either why or that they would want an apology. Now, we've heard that fairly consistency. Now, that is not what the judicial system says is justice when you're talking about mass incarceration. Now, when you talk about someone going to take a sit down and that giving them a rehabilitative, hit the pa- they hit the reset button, well, I'm old enough to remember where you could have gone and gotten your GED or gotten your teeth fixed or maybe received some counseling. But then in the 70s, we opened up you know, the mental health facilities. We turned these people out. The rates of homelessness in- increased. We started mass incarceration. And now we're warehousing people. Yeah. So there is no healing. There is no breaking the cycle of violence. And if we look at Lawrence Phillips, he was traumatized. He was knocked out by an adult male at 11 years old. I mean, that's a trauma that that boy is going to have to heal and deal with for the remainder of his life. Let me stop you right there and ask, because this is a question I've had. Imagine if you ran into a 19-year-old version of Lawrence Phillips. You knew his story. You knew about his talent. Mm -hmm. You knew that football was very important to him. You also knew he had this history of violence against women that was learned behavior. Mm -hmm. How do you put someone like that on the road to healing? What's yeah. your advice? I know I know every case is different. Yeah. But someone like this who's had child yeah. is first of all I have to ask this and it's so hard to ask is healing even possible? Absolutely it's possible. And what's what does healing look like? Well, again, well, let's go back to the village. I think you know, we work with the Department of Justice, the Office of Violence Against Women as TA providers for their campus programs and their consolidated youth. And one of the areas that these communities are responsible for is coordinated community response. You need comprehensive wraparound services for someone who's experienced that level of trauma and who's perpetrated that level of violence. So he would need some mental health intervention. He probably would need some uh, uh, medical intervention. He would need ongoing mentoring and role modeling. He would need a mentoring, constant, uh, vigilant expectations of behaviors and have a team of resources, community resources, to, to help him understand his own psychological trauma, his own behaviors, so that he is then more aware of how to gain skills to prevent it. And that's not a, he get you know, go to a workshop, go to a training, but an ongoing life journey he would have to heal from. So you just answered my next question, but I want to ask it explicitly. Uh, one of the things I've been hearing from a lot of people who are defenders of the Nebraska football program and their coach at the time, Tom Osborne, is you can't say Nebraska didn't do anything for Lawrence Phillips. They sent him for a few weeks to do anger management. Now, I think anger management counseling is kind of ridiculous for a situation this extreme. Um, I just I've had friends who've done anger management counseling, group counseling. It's usually six people in the room. It's not unlike AA where people just go around the room and tell their stories 
with the idea that hearing other people's stories will help them heal. Is that sufficient for a case like this? No, it's not. And as you said, I mean, it became so extreme. His trauma was so extreme. The violence he was perpetrating was so extreme that it's a Band-Aid over a much larger wound. And so, again, it would be, you know, one element of a treatment plan that was about how he was going to live his life moving forward and who was going to be within the community supportive and responsible for hoping that helping him reach those markers. And so I don't think anger management alone is going to do it, just like in the military or in other communities where you have uh, this perception of the violence happening within those institutions at a rate higher than it happens in civilian society. Lawrence Phillips experienced extreme violence in his life and then in turn learned the lessons of perpetrating extreme violence. And so it would never be just as simple as saying, put him somewhere for two weeks versus Let's work with him over the next 10, 15, 20 years as he gains the social emotional development, the social healing, emotional healing of his trauma to understand why he behaves the way he does. You know, I know I don't need to tell you this, but I know you're well aware that accusations of sexual assault are foundational in how black men have been both dehumanized Mm -hmm. and criminalized in this country from the days of slavery. Mm -hmm. How do you navigate fighting to end violence against women, fighting to heal communities of color, while also navigating the ways in which this charge can often be used Mm -hmm. as a way to dehumanize? Do you address both in the work? Absolutely. You know, here we're based in D.C., you know, the first chocolate city. And so our our work is proven in the schools of the... Uh, DCPS charter and private schools of the Washington metropolitan area, starting in middle school all the way into colleges and universities. And so every day we are con- we are engaging young men to find their best selves. And as an African American man, we see it as central to my masculinity, uh, as one empowering young men to understand and identify that a part of our cultural survival, cultural responsibility and expectation is understanding how to keep the girls and women in our community safe. And it starts with us identifying that we as men can be strong without being violent. And then for me as an adult man in the lives of of boys and young women to role model that through my own behavior. And so I think we can absolutely recognize that with the racism that exists in the world, uh, with the criminal justice system and mass incarceration, your best strategy about it is not to play the games that set you up. And part of that is about knowing who you are as a man and knowing how to use your social emotional skill building, understanding anger, understanding empathy, sympathy, rage, all of the things that we as men are told to ignore, emotion, that we are told those are feminine ideas, compromises our humanity and limits our ability to respond in moments of frustration or shame and embarrassment. And so what we do on a daily basis with our young people is give them the practice of understanding themselves so that in the moment where something is unfolding, a police stop, as an example. We know how to navigate that, to not escalate the situation, to maintain our own dignity and humanity, and to recognize you are not alone Keep your mouth shut and let the, let the cavalry come, as it were, is one of the ways that we talk about working mm. with our young people. Be prepared not to set yourself up by overreacting. Be prepared to set your, not set yourself up by um, doing something inappropriate in the lives of the girls and women that you are around. See, that's an interesting way of framing it because it frames it away from respectability politics, which a lot of young people of color instinctually reject because 
their response is, why do I have to act extra polite to a police officer or more polite than my white counterparts to a police officer who's treating me badly? There's this great Dave Chappelle bit about that, about he and his white friend smoking some weed and how his friend goes up to the cop and blows pot like in his face and asks for directions. I'm going to ask him for directions. I said, Chip, no, Chip, don't do it. It was too late. He was walking over there. This man was high as Excuse me. Excuse me, sir. Touching him as Excuse me. Need some information. Uh, start confessing things he shouldn't confess. I'm a little high. All I want to know, which way is 3rd Street? The cop was like, hey, take it easy. You're on 3rd Street. You better be careful. Go ahead, move it. Move it. And that's all that happened. That's the end of the story. That's a tough thing to ask a young person to do. Because I know when I was a teenager, I didn't want anybody telling me anything. Sure. And this idea that you have to be extra polite to survive, I, that, that, that's tough. So, that's a tough so our program with young men is called the Men of Strength Club. And again, strength is not just physical. There is a character, there is a resiliency, there is an expectation that is central to our identity as men and as black men. And I think this is in Appalachia and urban, rural, and suburban communities across the country, where what you were saying is that your dignity as an individual, as a human, allows you not to only have anger and rage as the two emotions you know how to express. Mm. And that the strategy of being present in a moment where you're you are vulnerable to an authority that is greater than yours is one of the things that's important for us to teach all of our young people whether we go uptown northwest dc or the private schools uh in this area or or the uh, affluent communities all of our young people are at risk for something Mm -hmm. it just may have a different impact in working class and uh, working class communities brown and working class communities and so what we're really what we're really uh having success with is helping these young men see alternatives to what they've been told they can do as boys and men. And once they see, it's really who they are truly wanting to be anyway. And so it's not as tough as people may believe. They, they really run to it. It's one of the reasons we've been in uh, the school, some of the schools we've been working with for 15 years running our program, because it's something that resonates with boys, it resonates with communities, and it is something that we all desire, yet we think we may be the only ones who feel this way. And when they see that we're not, they feel attached to something bigger than themselves. Your organization doesn't so much talk to the people like Lawrence Phillips, it talks to the people who would have been the teammates and classmates of Lawrence Phillips. What advice, once again, if you had this situation in front of you now, Mm -hmm. what advice would you give the teammates of Lawrence Phillips? Well, I think, and particularly in sports, because of the the, the pedestal and the platform that they hold, the stature that sports has within our community, athletes and teammates recognize what's the one thing that they say they're going to miss when they retire? It's their teammates. Mm -hmm. And in the moments where that kind of intimacy that a team can be, the opportunity for them to not only talk to other coaches, talk to one another, and if you find a barrier there, again, this is about the resiliency of understanding community and resources on a college campus, uh, whether it be going to the health center, whether it be talking to people who know, have more insight around these issues than you do, so that you can strategize a plan for the best way to support 
Lawrence Phillips in this case. Mm. I'm sure there were people who said, hey, you know, Lawrence, knock it off. But they're, you know, 19, 20 year old young people themselves. Were they versed in all of the kinds of interventions that Lawrence was going to need? But the opportunity to know what exists on their campus is very helpful, which is one of the things that Men Can Stop Rape has done with our You Ask smartphone app. It coordinates for free 53 city agencies that provide these types of services mm. and coordinates and identifies all of the additional resources that Lawrence Phillips could have used on your campus specifically. It is one hell of a thing to ask a 19-year-old to have to navigate this by themselves. Absolutely. One hell of a thing. Prof, you said you had some questions? I do. I actually do have one. But first, I want to say I do admire and appreciate the work that's being done because it gives students... Um, starting at a young age, an opportunity to actually see what they can grow into. So that's actually amazing. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank yeah. you. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with Toni Morrison's book, Paradise, but in that text, I actually read this in undergrad, and I still love it to this day. Um, my professor at the time, she had us look at the women as pariahs in the novel because they weren't accepted within their respective communities. So with the work that your organization does, would you like to say or could you comment about whether or not you think athletes are considered pariahs, especially somebody like Lawrence Phillips who had the issues that he had at such a young age into his adult life? Well, I, I, thank you for that question. I think it ties into the narrative of black men and, and you know, the the black brood. It's, it's, it's been with us since, you know, slavery was formalized. And so I think it does make it very easy. Athletes, the military, they're on mm-hmm. a platform where they have this perceived benefit And so they become a very easy target. And what I would always like to say is that, again, most athletes aren't doing these things. Frankly, most athletes are, you know, family men, um, good community leaders. And so they get so frustrated when they feel like a Lawrence Phillips becomes this foundational archetype for what it means to be a black athlete. And it's like on the one hand, it's like I totally respect their frustration but on, on the other hand, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be either A, addressing these problems or B, using these instances as teachable moments to make sure that they don't replicate themselves. I, I think that's exactly right. And I think that's the opportunity of, you know, recognizing men can be strong without being violent. Men are can have appreciate their own social, emotional intelligence, intimacy. And so in the moments where there's someone like Lawrence Phillips, you know, there's probably 15 different people on that team alone, if not more who are the examples of the type of healthy masculinity we want to promote. But it becomes easy for us in this 24-hour news cycle, to your question, to say, oh, bad Lawrence Phillips, I'm not like him, so I'm not that I'm not that bad. Right. I still may control my family. I still may be abusive to people. I still may do things that are a benefit of my male privilege, but I'm not killing anybody. I'm not being aggressive. I'm not drunk driving or raping my girlfriend, so I'm, I, I'm better. And I think that makes him an easy target and then all of the background in his life goes unexamined. Mm. But I think because you mentioned Joe Ehrman, who used Joe Ehrman, for people who don't know, used to play uh, for the Baltimore Colts. He mentors tons of young people and he mentors NFL teams about toxic masculinity and how to break through some of these cycles. And one of the things he says, which I think rang, it just rang so strongly with me when I was reading through Lawrence Phillips' story, is he talks about the difference between transactional and transformational coaches. And the transactional coach are the people who are thinking, what can they get out of it in terms of their own psychological gratification? They're not thinking about how they're going to transform the player, the individual, raising them from a child to a grown-up. And you see these people around Lawrence Phillips, they were his role models, and they're looking at him so transactionally. 
that it, it chills the bone and it makes you feel like if that was seen as normal, then this must be the dominant culture in big time youth sports. It must be because this kind of behavior in a vacuum doesn't look like anyone's idea of what sane behavior of adult child mentorship should be. That's right. And I think when you talk about Joe's football teams at Gilman up in Baltimore County uh, winning championships under a principle and a foundation of love. Um, people are like, oh, they were so resistant now. This was a credit that only Joe could pull off. But Joe, during a championship season, got an opportunity to go and work with the Alabama football team. And I, weren't, we weren't sure Coach Saban and them were going to show up, and yet they did, and he stayed the entire time. And again, for all of the problems that may uh, encircle big-time sports, there are enough young men in that room that connected to the exact thing that we're talking about in terms of family and community and healthy masculinity and being nonviolent and in terms of sexual assault, you know, being able to make a connection to, and particularly for men of color, being able to make a connection to the boundary cross, the, the violence, the sexual assault as being non-consensual. They've experienced not being most authorized in a moment with the police or community. Or with a coach. Or with a coach. So they understood oh, this is what women go through in a way in which major sports outlets might not cover that reality, that these men can connect with what they feel is their responsibility to prevent men's violence against girls and women and are desirous of doing it. But we lift up, unfortunately, more of the Lawrence Phillips scenario in a very limited, narrow narrative as aggressive, violent black man who's raped these women and killed these people and he basically got what he deserved versus a whole team of men who probably you'll find out from his teammates may have tried to help him and yet at 1920 did not have the skills. Where do we as men get taught these things, right? We're told very early on, don't cry. We're instantly told that anything connected to our emotion is female and that to be female makes you vulnerable and a target and therefore female is bad. And so this is what Lawrence Phillip was experiencing and witnessing uh, in his life. And that trauma is, is hard to overcome, but yet still can be overcome. So just some closing words about this show. First and foremost, thank you, Damon Benning, Christian Dotson Pearson, Neil Irvin, for helping us unpack the story, the tragedy that is the life of Lawrence Phillips, dead at the age of 40 by his own hand inside of a prison cell. I, I got to say, I'm leaving the, today with some different ideas about Lawrence Phillips than the one I came in with. The biggest change is that I really do think that the coaches in his life, there's a lot of evidence that said that they did care about him. I came to this thinking that they were negligent in terms of treating Lawrence Phillips like a fully formed human being. I think they did have that love for Lawrence Phillips, but I don't think football coaches, particularly back Back then, but I think it exists now as well, had the tools to actually intervene in the lives of players and confront the kinds of toxic masculinity that spelled doom for Lawrence Phillips. I don't think to this day, coaches are comfortable talking about things that they think are quote unquote feminine, like emotions, like pain, like healing, like psychoanalysis, like medication, things that some people really do need if they are going to, in fact, heal from abusive situations. So if there's any lesson that comes out of this, it has to be for coaches. Listen, 
try to intervene in the lives of your team in a way that actually makes them fully formed human beings and doesn't just treat them like small versions of NFL players. That's what I'm coming out of this with. I think it's so important. And, you know, it's obviously not just about coaches, but I do believe that a team creates a very distinct and unique environment that allows an authority figure to step in and try to cure some of the poison that this society injects in our veins on a weekly basis. Hey, for everybody out there, thank you for joining us here on Edge of Sports. You can always contact me, Dave Zirin, at edgeofsports at slate.com or at edgeofsports on Twitter or on our Facebook page. Next week, we're going to be airing the epic Kareem broadcast. It's going to come out with a video of the interview that's going to be up at thenation.com and edgeofsportspodcast.com. In two weeks, a little sneak preview for everybody, we are going to have as a guest on the show none other than Noam Chomsky about his opinions on sports, politics, and social change. Yep, just another sports podcast. Hey, for everybody here at Edge of Sports, we are out of here. Peace. Peace.